We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's 7-11 day in 2022. On this Monday, we recap the Chicago White Sox lackluster homestand again. They are on a two-game winning streak as we record this episode. That's good news, but they only won three out of seven home games this week against Minnesota and Detroit. That's bad news. Now they have eight games in seven days as they travel to Cleveland and Minnesota. This road trip will have a lot to say about if the White Sox are truly in the race for the American League Central. And the American League playoff picture has suddenly got wild. Have you been watching what the Baltimore Orioles and Seattle Mariners are doing? We'll take a look at the entire American League while answering your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, let's talk about the All-Star rosters as they were just announced. And joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Tim Anderson is an All-Star starter, which is great, but he's the only White Sox player at the moment going to Los Angeles. And honestly, I'm a bit annoyed by this because I feel like Dylan Cease got snubbed. Yeah, it's Cease is the rough one. Cease is the exception. And I think what's especially unfortunate is that if the rotation holds and there are no weather cancellations, then Cease would be on track to start Sunday. So theoretically, they could have named him to the roster and then he wouldn't have appeared anyway. He would just get the honor of going to the game and, you know, wearing the uniform, being around the clubhouse, getting to travel, getting all the, you know, introductions, all the, all the fanfare and such, and ultimately not pitching. And that's fine. He gets to attach to his name. But now I think, you know, if the rotation holds and he's on track for that Sunday start, like he wouldn't even be named as a reserve, you know, as a, as somebody can fill in for one of those guys starting on Sunday. So that's what I think is a little bit, uh, you know, Unfortunate about this, you know, aside from him getting uh, snubbed, the only thing I can really think when it comes to his season is that he's given up a lot of unearned runs. Like he's given up 10 
uh, unearned runs, which I think is either league lead or close to like second place. And that makes his numbers look a little bit different, but that was really like a early season problem. Like his last month, he's been basically nails. And, you know, the runs are just not coming whether unearned or earned. And uh, he's been in his finest form. So it's not something I think that should be held against him. And, and in this case, uh, that's the only really th- real thing I can see looking at his numbers as to why, you know, he might not get that respect. Yeah, he was the pitcher of the month for the American League in June. Yeah. And he doesn't get to go on the all-star team. He's currently fifth in war on fan graphs. He's eighth in baseball reference. So no matter which option you like to pick for pitchers, he's in the top 10 in the American League. And he's ahead of both Nestor Cortez and Garrett Cole. And both Cortez and Cole yeah. are on the all-star team. And that's where I draw the line, Jim. I There's one too many Yankees all-stars. And one of these two should get in. But I don't think both. So if I had my way, Cortez is having the better season than Garrett Cole. So this can you know get picked up by New York and all the Yankees fans can come at me. But Dylan Cease is having a better season than Garrett Cole. And that's where I would have Cease on the all-star roster over Garrett Cole. But to your point, Jim, Cease is not going to be pitching in the all-star game because the White Sox need him more. And he's got to make that Sunday start against the Minnesota Twins as the White Sox have some ground to make up if they are still serious about getting to the postseason in 2022. But still, I mean, it is an honor thing. It's a career achievement. He's still in arbitration, so this goes a long way in his talks with the White Sox if they have to go into arbitration to decide his 2023 salary if they don't settle on what his salary would be next year. And it's kind of a bummer. And mm-hmm. he's not the only one. Uh, Carlos Rodon is not on the National League All-Star team. And uh, that's bizarre because he leads the National League pitchers and wins above replacement. Yeah, I, I did think the CC going back to the, the pitcher of the month thing, like it was a little weird that he won pitcher of the month because he did have all the 100 runs early in the month. I saw that honor. I was like, huh, just because when you look at his uh, you know, ERA for June, it's really impressive. I'm looking it up right now. It's, uh, yeah, he's got a 0.33 ERA, but he has nine unearned runs. Like, that's basically like, you know, 10 runs. And, you know, part of it is, you know, defense and such. But, you know, part of being a pitcher, a frontline pitcher, is pitching around it. So, I you know, while I thought the June honor was a little bit unearned or a little bit, you know, kind of, I guess, misleading in terms of his effectiveness, he ironed it out by the middle of the month. And and that wasn't an issue anymore. So, I mean, that that's why I thought, like, he'd gotten past that. and. But yeah, you can't be named, I think, June Pitcher of the Month and then be somehow left off. <laughs> you know, when it was really, like, that's when the biggest issues were uh, in, in the early part. So yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, I, I wish, looking at the roster, that, like, you know, since Miguel Cabrera is getting on as a Manfred pick, which I, I actually like that idea a lot, like Pujols getting in, Cabrera getting in, getting, like, the commissioner's picks for, like, lifetime achievement. I think that's a really good idea. Now that the games don't count anymore towards anything meaningful, like, yeah, give them a nod. Give them that. Give them that salute. Let the other players salute them. Uh, you know, I remember that uh, game where was it? Chris Sale gave up the opposite field single to Chipper Jones in his last All Star game appearance, and Ian Kinsler broke the wrong way. Oh yes. Uh, like basically, yeah, Kinsler made it happen by like you know breaking towards second in a ball that was clearly to his left. There was no reason for him to do it. He basically gave him that single, and that annoyed me. And in terms of like, oh great, if Chris Sale gets you know a blown save or a no decision for this all-star game because 
he wanted to give Chipper Jones a uh, you know a hit in his last appearance. Like, yeah, that that's great. But now that you know this, you know the the whole uh, you know home field advantage thing doesn't matter anymore. Uh, sure, you know, go nuts with these tributes. Give the fans what they want. You know, it's cool when players respect other players, and you see that kind of outpouring of uh, just admiration and respect for an, uh, one of their peers. So. I like that idea a lot, but I think if Cabrera's going, Gregory Soto shouldn't go. Like, who who needs, like, a first-half closer, like a first-half closing success story? If Cabrera's there, if he's going to get in the game, if he's going to get in a bat and a standing ovation, like, that should be enough for Tigers fans to have their guy there, to have uh, you know, their fans tune in, to have their blogs and podcasts talking and writing about him. Like, that's that serves that purpose that the, you know, player nod gives them. So that's, that's, I think, where I would go picking for it. Like, Garrett Cole has star power, so sure. He's in there. Nestor Cortez, he's one of those, like, first-half success stories that doesn't have, like, the, the you know, the, the pull that Garrett Cole has. You know, so I, I understand, like, the, how both of them get in. But Soto is the one that irks me more just because, like, a year from now, Soto is probably, you know, given his walk rate, he may have, like, a 5 ERA next year, and his all-star selection looks really misleading. So I think if Cabrera's getting in, that, like, gives that team... Uh, an excuse to be, or, or gives that league an excuse to say like, oh, the Tigers have a player. So great. Cross them off the list. You know, they're, they're, they're accounted for. Well, Soto picked up the loss in Sunday's game against the White Sox as AJ Pollock, the Chevy Beretta still got gas in it, Jim, came up with the go-ahead hit and Eloy Jimenez tacked on another RBI single off Soto as the White Sox have now won two straight games. However, in their seven-game homestand, they lost two out of three to Minnesota, and they split with Detroit after I said in Sox Machine Live that the White Sox needed to sweep Detroit to wipe out the bad taste of the Monday-Tuesday night losses to the Minnesota Twins, have a 5-2 and two homestand, and really get themselves in a position to possibly catch Cleveland and Minnesota in this upcoming week, and they failed. Friday and Saturday, no, I should say Thursday and Friday, were, were just terrible. Uh, just terrible performances by the White Sox. Mm-hmm. What were your main takeaways from the four-game series against Detroit, Jim? Yeah, missed opportunities uh, for one. Um, you know, getting shut down. Like I guess it was kind of like the sampler of everything the White Sox had done wrong in the way they'd, they'd frustrated fans. You had the you know flat performance against a no-name pitcher, a righty, like an unremarkable righty in Bo Brisky, who, you know, he attacked the White Sox, but they hit some balls hard against him. But yeah, they, you know, the White Sox hit a lot of balls hard and it finds, you know, they, they find gloves and they end up on the warning track. And, you know, as we watch the sample sizes building and, and watch all these flies dying, you realize like, oh yeah, they're not pulling the ball. In the, they, they always have to leave the yard to the hardest part of the park, you know, the right center, the opposite field power alleys and, you know, the drives fall short and, uh, you know, they don't take the, the, the shortest distance. So, you know, that's, that's one of them. Um, you had Tony La Russa making some really, rough decisions, you know, whether it's bunting a runner over from first to second uh, for the not maximizing perhaps all the at-bats from their better hitters, you know, Josh Harrison turning over the top of the order, like you give up an out from one of those guys, that's uh, not great. You know, you'd rather have all outs available for those players. You had the Lucas Giolito, like having to finish an inning or try to finish an inning, uh, not being trusted or, or not or not trusting the splits that say like, oh, he's pretty rough third time through or he's pretty rough uh, after 75 pitches uh, and, and you're kind of looking a gift horse in the mouth there. Um, and, and then just, you know, after the game, having the kind of quotes that 
we saw in June, whether it's about a Giolito start or a Lynn start, like he always has the same thing. It's like he deserved to finish an inning. Like Giolito has a five ERA. He's lost the right to finish the inning, and uh, you know until further notice or until like there's a more comfortable margin. Like uh, just I, I think the first two games reflected the lack of urgency or the lack of like learning over the course of the first half of the season, which also goes back like the last half of last season and and the way they keep gravitating towards 500. It's just, there's no sense that the White Sox think that they're as unremarkable as pedestrian as the record has been for the last six baseball months. So I think that's really the frustrating part. Then, you know, the, the last two games, I think we saw some of the brighter sides, which is Johnny Cueto uh, looking great. Gavin Sheets looking great. Yohan Moncada contributing. Like he's still not like 2019 Moncada, but his at-bats are better. Uh, he's getting some some carry on his fly balls if they're not going over the fence. He's finding the line drive areas to center and left to uh, you know, shorten it up when he needs a single. And he's come up with some of those. He's playing really good defense, so he's doing it. So I, I think we're seeing some, the last two games, we saw some of the better parts. But I, that only goes so far just because Sunday's game, the Tigers gave that to him in a very White Sox fashion. You know, letting Drew Hutchinson try to finish six innings when there's no reason why he should try to finish six innings. Uh, Robbie Grossman dropping the fly the way Luis Robert dropped the fly. Uh, <laughs> that was, you know, just strange. I, like, I've seen this before. Having Michael Kopech throwing 92 and the Tigers getting two run, quick runs off him off the first two batters and then doing nothing over the rest of the game. Like, we've seen that. So it, it was like the White Sox played themselves over a Sunday's game. And while it's, you know, good they got the splits and were able to salvage it and, and get past the ugliness of the first two games, like it's still not, they're still not showing a whole lot of signs that they can be great against better competition on a reliable basis. Yeah, back to Mankata, just a quick note. After his 5 for 49 slump, Yohan Mankata's 15 for his last 53. That's a 283 batting average, 321 on base percentage and slugging. 415. So you're right, Jim. It's not 2019 version of Yohan Makata, but it is closer to the 2021 version of Yohan Makata. And that version of Yohan Makata was a three-war player. So hopefully he can continue to hit that well. This was an interesting tidbit from Chicago White Sox national beat reporter. I kid. <laughs> oh, one second before you get into that, though. I, 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 you mentioned those numbers. And that's basically like Connor Gillespie with good defense. Yeah. <sighs> Because I'm looking at like Gillespie in 2014, 282, 336, 416. And that that's not bad. Like that's a case where just like with good defense, because Gillespie's defense was yeah. bad. And so ultimately he gave away his gains. Like that was an above average season at the plate, but wasn't good enough. He only hit seven homers over 130 games. And that wasn't good enough to carry his glove. But in this case, like Gillespie with defense, like it works for now. We've seen, you know, given the depths that he sunk to, I'll take it for now. Uh, if he can hold the, that kind of as a floor, it's not bad. Yeah. I I agree with you. I just sigh because I know what's upcoming as far as in pay, and that's not worth $17 million yeah. in 2023. I'll just say that right now. Averting disaster is kind of my goal right now. <laughs> I like, I, <laughs> I, I like building. the game plan. All right, so let's talk about what the White Sox national beat reporter Bob Nightingale of USA Today wrote Sunday in his column. And it is this quick paragraph, and he wrote, No one has been more disappointing than the Chicago White Sox, who must take a good hard look at what went wrong if they missed the playoffs. There have been a lot of whispers of unrest, clicks, and the lack of player leadership inside the clubhouse tearing apart this talented team. 
Now, one would say, Bob, why are you writing this rumor? But again, this is the National White Sox beat reporter, Jim. He has access to the White Sox that a lot of national people do not. Do we have to take this paragraph seriously on what Bob Nightingale is reporting and happening with the White Sox inside the clubhouse? I think so. Yeah, I know Nightingale gets, you know, basically like... Well, one, I don't know why, you know, any beat writer would look at his mentions or any national baseball writer would look at his mentions. Like you ever look at a Jeff Passan or a Passan uh, reference, Passan, sorry. I botched it twice. Jeff Passan uh, reference. I always pronounce his name as Passan just because I think of Volkswagen Passat. Like I always see his name. So uh, Jeff Passan. Um Looking at his uh, mentions or like whenever I click on one of his tweets and just see like the, the string of garbage underneath it and like Nightingale always gets the, you know, people saying the opposite of what's going to happen, like confirmed uh, White Sox getting along harmoniously. Like, and, and so I, you know, I get why he has a reputation because sometimes he's kind of a mess, but in this case, like, you know, given his connections, given his, I'm thinking back to the Tony La Russa story in spring training and how basically like he goes and has dinner with Tony La Russa and how he goes and hangs out with Jerry Reinsdorf. Like, you know, part of me thinks like, who wants this story written? Does this benefit, you know, that's my first thought. Does this benefit Tony La Russa to have the story written? Does it benefit Jerry Reinsdorf or Kenny Williams to have the story written? And I don't think so. Like, you know, I, I can't see any benefit for them. Like, this doesn't reflect well on anybody. It, it, I think it kind of pins it on the players, you know, lack of player leadership. So I, I think, you know, maybe it tries to deflect some of it that way. But even then, like that's still reflecting terribly on something, some, you know, somebody somewhere doing something wrong. And did you see the side by side video of Tim Anderson's all-star announcement? I, I, I did. So I first I saw the White Sox video of Miguel Cairo announcing that Tim Anderson is going. That was uh, McEwing, actually. Well, no, Joe McEwing did last year's. This okay. year was Miguel Cairo. Announcing that Tim Anderson is going to be an all-star starter. And oh my gosh, they could have filmed that at Downers Grove Country Club. Like, no excitement at all. No one's leaving their chair. It's a golf clap. And Tim Anderson, maybe it's an act of trying to be humble, but he's like not impressed at the honor. Like, this is the first time you're an all-star starter, dude. Like, you didn't get a chance to get in a bat last year when you made the all-star game. You will get in a bat in the all-star game this year. And there's no excitement. There's no joy. And then someone on Twitter posted the side-by-side video of last year, Joe McEwing announcing that Tim Anderson was a sub player. He's a backup, but he made his first all-star team and you got Jose Abreu jumping on his back. Like, yeah, it, that video was pretty telling. And I'm not sure if the white Sox really wanted to send that out publicly. I don't, I don't know who made that decision for the social media team, but it, it drew more questions than excitement yeah. or uh, happiness you would find from the, the White Sox clubhouse. Like It just seemed like no one was excited. Not even Tim Anderson is excited to go to the All-Star game. Yeah, that was uh, at Aloy Garcia 84 on Twitter who posted the uh, hopeful side-by-side video. Yeah, it's that was weird to me. And then you know when Anderson was speaking, somebody said, like, stand up, and he didn't stand up. Like, that was also a little bit of a strange, like, was that Anderson not hearing it? Was it somebody he didn't like uh, telling him to do something he didn't want to do? Like, uh, uh, yeah. Well, and also, I, I think it mentioned, like, he's representing his family, which is also kind yep. of a you know, thing, depending on. Yep. 
I saw that also was a little bit awkward. So yeah, there's just it's it's odd. It it's you know, there there are some strange vibes around it. So it it would yeah, I am inclined to think like yeah, this is probably true, and he must be hearing it from something, uh, and and from enough people, I suppose, to where like he feels comfortable. He being Bob Nightingale, right? Yeah, Bob Nightingale. Like he feels comfortable, like you know, running with it without feeling like he's torching his best sources. Like you know, perhaps he's heard grumbling from Reinsdorf or Larusa saying like you know that you know maybe framing it in a different way, and that's why I think like maybe that it comes down to whispers and the rest, clicks and lack of player leadership, like clicks and player leadership that could be the player's fault and not anything LaRusse is doing or anything that you know Reinsdorf or Williams or Han did so that's why I think like it's you know maybe angled enough to where it's true but also avoids the you know kind of the scrutiny of the non-player leadership which would be LaRusse and the the coaching staff that he hired so that that strikes me as like yeah framed well enough and I think there's probably something to it yeah, the, you are asking who does this benefit, and I do think it benefits the decision makers of the Chicago White Sox that they have to make difficult decisions before the trade deadline on August 2nd, and if they don't bounce back. Hmm. Lack of player leadership. Well, we traded this guy because he's not a leader in the clubhouse. Or we got clicks. Well, we had this before in 2016, and we traded away Chris Sale and Adam Eaton to rebuild the clubhouse culture that we had because they were annoying us in the White Sox front office because one of them had no issue calling us out uh, both privately and publicly. (laughs) We've seen that before from the Chicago White Sox. So you ask who does this benefit? I think it benefits the decision makers of the Chicago White Sox to have this leaked out that if this team is still below 500 come August 2nd, well, it makes it a lot easier to trade certain players before the deadline. And if fans get upset, the White Sox as an organization could say they just don't fit with the club culture that we're trying to build right now. And it's just not a mesh personality wise and we're and they're underperforming. So we got to move forward. Like, a, are you talking about like another white flag trade or possibly? But I don't know if it's going to be necessarily a white flag trade. Like if they said publicly we are selling, we're five games back of the twins. There's no way we're going to catch the twins. Would you consider that a white flag trade? Depending on now, I think it's got to take more than five games. I'm thinking like you know, depending on see August. So right now, as they go into the stretch against the Twins and Guardians, like uh, right now, I think as long as they stay five six games, I think is okay. Like eight games is kind of the red line to me. Yeah, and, and you know that'll shift as the end of the season gets closer. But right now, like eight games, I think is my red line because I was thinking like w- last year uh, in the second half when the White Sox were playing pedestrian baseball. And I kept waiting for somebody to make a run. And, and Cleveland was not making a run. And it kept being eight games. Like, yeah, I guess eight games is a lot to to make up in half a season between two decent teams. You know, you, you need a lot to go wrong to get to eight games. So that's that's kind of where I'm drawing the line in, in terms of feeling like it's got to be something. But five games, I still think that's like a – the Twins aren't good enough, I think, to – and I don't think they're on an upswing either organizationally. Uh, Carlos Correa is going to be leaving. They have some pitching decisions to make. Like they're not necessarily a, a bet to be as good next year. Like they have some internal development that needs to be done. They have some decisions to make pitching wise. So it's a case where I think five games is still white flaggy. Um, I will say that this is just a case where like, you know, if they did make that trade, I think everyone would say like, why didn't you get rid of La Russa? Like the, it was still like the, the discontent would be like, not that people like this team. I think a lot of White Sox fans hate this team. 
<laughs> a lot of White Sox fans uh, just are really displeased. And, and you know, you, you see a lot of people saying, like, I just want them to be out of it so I know what the rest of my summer is going to be like. Which is, you know, frustration talking. I'm sure that they'd rather have it be, you know, be two games back than uh, 12 games back. So I'm, I'm sure that, you know, most of them don't mean it. But I think there is not an attachment to this team. There's an attachment to certain individuals, but not the entire team and certainly not to La Russa. So if some players go... And like, say if it's like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think like Aloy Jimenez gets traded because he has like a hot couple of weeks and the White Sox are saying like, he's one of these players who, you know, just does not fit with what we want to do roster wise, depth wise, we can get something for him. Uh, and, and we feel it like this is, you know, we are trading for a better fit. I, I think, you know, if they pinned on interpersonal things, I think, you know, you'd say fans saying like, why is it LaRusse is still here? Like, why are you trading like players we like and the manager we hate is still here? And the manager has proven nothing and shouldn't be, shouldn't have been here in the first place is still here. So I think that's the, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the difference here or the thing, you know, I don't think a paragraph in a Bob Nightingale story is going to overcome that if LaRusse hangs around. And, and, you know, LaRusse is a sizable reason, maybe not the driving reason, but like he certainly isn't helping why this team is so miserable to watch and follow. Yeah, if they quit, as in they, the White Sox, on August 2nd, they decide to sell, then there's really no reason to have Tony La Russa as your manager. You might as well see what Miguel Cairo could do on an interim basis because you're reloading in some fashion in the offseason, rearranging your team. We saw it happen with San Diego. They got a new manager. We saw it with the Minnesota Twins. They made a bunch of moves. And right now, both teams are looking like they're going to be making the postseason of 2022 after a very... Very rough 2021 season. So we'll keep an eye on this. Again, it's a paragraph in a Bob Nightingale note section of his weekly column on USA Today. But with the ties that Bob Nightingale has with the Chicago White Sox and his resources, this is something we cannot ignore. So Bob continues to report on this. Let's, uh, Let's keep an eye on it. All right. A couple of things from this week, weeks of games before we move on in the podcast. Michael Kopech, he pitched five and a third innings, allowed four hits, two earned runs, walked three, struck out four. The final pitching line is pretty decent. You may look at this and say, oh, he got to the sixth inning and he only allowed two earned runs. That's a pretty good start from Michael Kopech. However, if you watch the start, the first inning was a mess as Michael Kopech's throwing mechanics were way off. He could only throw his slider for a strike. His fastball was all over the place, and I think one of the few strikes that he threw in the first inning with his fastball was actually a two-run homer by Javier Baez. And there was at one point the trainer had to come out, uh, James Crook, along with Ethan Katz, to check out Michael Kopech's knee. And Jim, just looking at the baseball savant data, his average velocity on his fastball against Detroit was 92 miles per hour. That is three miles per hour below his season average of 95 miles per hour. The spin rate is way below average for his season in this particular start. And while some may say it's a dead arm period, when the trainer went out and looked on how Kopech's lower half was going in his motion, I'm wondering if there's still an underlying injury with his lower half as far as his leg, a hamstring, or possible knee that's nagging him and impacting his control. That's the first place to look, I think. You know, basically, you know, I, I wrote about Sunday morning just trying to figure out why Kopech is 0-4, why he's struggling, and, and, and just trying to figure out, like, how much velocity he's actually losing. And, and 
I looked at it and I saw like, well, his, his, he's not actually spending a lot of time in the low 90s. He's just not spending any time in the high 90s. Like he spends all his time kind of hovering between 93 and 94, which is not bad. It's just that his slider happened to not be working for him at a time where his fastball is less remarkable. So his fastball is not able to provide his slider the cover that it usually has. And, and sometimes the slider is more like a changeup and that like it's just not the pitch they're looking for. And he gets some you know, grounders or pop-ups or foul balls on mistakes he makes because this change in speed is enough. But when it's 93, 94, without that kind of pop, it's, uh, you know, the, the slider can be, you can wait back for it a little more. I think your hitter see it a little differently, keep the hands back, everything of that sort. So that, that's kind of where I was going into his start. And then he goes and, you know, sits 92. I mean, you know, his first, you know, series of fastballs, four out of the zone, and then, uh, you know, two to Baez, we're all like 90 to 92. And that is not what you want. And that's a case where like, uh, you know, them coming out to check with them. You hope that if he's pitching, if he's not reporting any pain, if he's not like shaking anything out, I didn't see a lot of like physical discomfort. I was looking for that, like looking for him kind of, you know, shaking his arm out, you know, kind of rotating his shoulder, loosening up motions in between pitches or while he's circling the mound. Didn't see any of those cues, so perhaps it is just dead arm. I, I think there is an opportunity here with this. Uh, there's a doubleheader coming up, so that might limit just exactly how many options the White Sox have for you know giving him some extra rest. But with Davis Martin, I do wonder if like you know maybe Kopech has to take his next turn because they have a doubleheader coming up and Martin already has to pitch. But maybe after the All Star break, like tie it into like a you know give him a little bit of rest maybe after the break if they can maybe try to have Davis Martin steal a start just to give them two full weeks off just because this didn't seem healthy. I, I think the good news is his slider looked better. And I, I think, you know, I, I, I saw the improvements from his slider in terms of just fewer spinners, fewer of them just kind of floating over the zone, had less power on him. So I mean like the velocity was down in all regards. So that wasn't good, but just the, the it seemed like the release point issues or whatever, you know, was affecting the way it was coming out of his hand and just kind of floating over the plate and, and contributed to that three homer outburst he gave up his last time out. Like this was better and perhaps it is dead arm. And like they, they, they thought that he made enough gains with the slider to overlook just the velocity loss and the Tigers were kept in bed. So, you know, maybe they were right about that. There does seem to be like either fatigue or some kind of thing, you know, just sapping his power. And I think that only goes so far. Like it's one thing to do against the Tigers, but against better offenses, uh, we, I mean, we saw kind of what happened with the Twins. And, you know, four homers, three in an inning, like that's where the pitfalls are with this kind of velocity that he's showing. Let's end this segment on a good note before we send it to break and we preview the upcoming series against the Cleveland Guardians. Gavin Sheets, back-to-back games with a home run, one off a 3-0 count, the only home run of the season so far for the White Sox on 3-0. And then in the Sunday game, he did a great job of fighting off outside pitches before finally getting one to pull inside and capitalizing on that opportunity to tie the game. In his last 47 at-bats, Gavin Sheets has three homers, 12 RBIs. He's hitting 362 with a 423 on base percentage and slugging 638. Jim, is the 2021 version of Gavin Sheets making a return? Maybe. It's a case where... To me, it seems like he's he has to play whack-a-mole a little bit. I don't know if he can cover all pitches at one time, but he seems to get bombarded by something or he seems to be weak against something. Pitchers sniff it out. They attack him. 
he needs time to regroup. Then he comes back and solves an issue. And then it takes a little bit of time for pitchers to adjust to that adjustment. And we talked about it before that Sheets, you know, wasn't quite hammering fastballs. Looked like he was caught in between following back fastballs and then topping breaking balls or change-ups. Like he wasn't punishing any kind of pitch. And he was kind of hoping for those shank singles to left field. And now he's come back and he's hitting the fastball a lot harder. He's been able to redirect those, whether it's, um, you know, on the inner half, he can pull it to right. Outer half, he can launch it to left center, get some lift on it. But either way, like he's covering fastballs to both sides. But, you know, right now looking at his uh, splits for July, he does not have a hit on a breaking ball. (laughs) And he didn't, he struggled against that in June too. So it's a case where like maybe they're attacking him with velocity right now, or maybe he's just good enough at fending off sliders, uh, you know, maybe following them off, taking them, like not putting bad sliders into play or swinging through them. And he's staying alive long enough to get a pitch he can drive. But that's kind of how I'm looking at it right now. We talked about it before where Sheets, to me, he always looks good enough and in control of himself enough at the plate to where you have to look at results to judge him. Like he's not going to look overwhelmed or you know, he's not going to be swinging at pitches at his face or you know, swinging at pitches that hit him. Like he, he's always under control to a certain extent that makes you think like, oh, that was just a bad fort bats get him next game. And then like, turns out that seven games later, uh, he has not gotten them. And then he needs a, he needs a tune up. And to me, it seems like he got the tune up in terms of like getting his timing on his fastball. I do wonder if we're going to see like pitchers just trying to slider him to death, but if he can maintain this form of not trying to, you know, not getting overwhelmed, not like thrashing against sliders and, and getting out of sorts and just maybe having this plate approach to where like, he's not going to, smoke him out of the park, but he's, he's at least going to fend him off. He's going to follow him off. He's going to look for those to flip the other way or flip into foul territory because, you know, he just can't quite fit it inside the third baseline, but he's not going to try to do damage on him and, and not going to try to do too much. He's going to save his doing too much for fastballs and things that aren't spinning. You know, maybe that's something that works for him from the time being, but I'm still waiting for him to just have the thing where it's just like, oh, he's, he's hitting everything or he's covering everything right now. He, he might not be able to have a 600 slugging percentage against fastballs, sliders, curves, fork balls, knuckle balls, ephuses, everything like that. He's not going to be able to hit everything well, but I would like to at least see a period of time to where like he covers slow stuff and, and fast stuff with at least some effectiveness. We'll see how Cleveland shifts against Gavin Sheets. For the pitchers that are trying to stay on the outside corner, Sheets lately has been aiming for left field. We saw that against San Francisco Last weekend, we saw that a number of times against Detroit, even though he'd be fouling off pitches, that if you overshift against Sheets, he has no problem trying to hit a single to left field, or if he lines it down the left field line, it's going to be an easy double. With Jose Ramirez at third base, let's see on how Cleveland shifts against Gavin Sheets, if that is an area of hits that they'll try to take away from Gavin Sheets in this upcoming series. And speaking of that series, the White Sox are still two games below 500 as they make their last road trip before the All-Star break, visiting Cleveland and Minnesota. Can they finally find success in either city after being swept at both earlier this season? We discuss next after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, the Chicago White Sox, after their homestand, now go on the road. And they have four games in three days against the Cleveland Guardians. The Guardians are 41 and 42 on the season, still below 500. They're four and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins for first place in the American League Central. They're a half game ahead of the Chicago White Sox in the American League Central standings. Even though it's not been a good stretch for the Guardians, they're still just two games back of the last wild card spot in the American League. They have only won, won two out of their last 10 games. They're two and eight, and we'll get into that in a quick moment here. The pitching probables for Cleveland and the White Sox starting on Monday, July 11th, 6.10 p.m. Central Time. It's Lance Lynn against Cal Quantrill. Tuesday is the doubleheader. Game one is at 12.10 p.m. Central Time. Game two will start at 6.10 p.m. Central Time. That is also part of the Sox machine and along with our friends from the 108 Watch Party that you could watch along with us as far as that game two on Tuesday night. Davis Martin and Dylan Cease will start the games for the White Sox on Tuesday, but it hasn't been announced who is starting which game. Shane Bieber for Cleveland will start one of the games. So I imagine it will be Cease against Bieber for one of the games. Wednesday night, which is supposed to be getaway day, but this is a night game between the White Sox and Guardians. Lucas Giolito against Aaron Savali. And that's going to be a late Sox Machine Live as Jim and I will be streaming Sox Machine Live on Wednesday night after that game because both of us have to find our way to Minneapolis for this upcoming weekend. And we look forward to meeting many of you who will also be making that road trip to watch the White Sox and Twins in Minneapolis this upcoming weekend. The Twins series, by the way, is looking like Johnny Cueto, Michael Kopech, Lance Lynn, and Dylan Cease to be making those starts over the weekend. But Jim... Let's focus on Cleveland here mm-hmm. and these four games in three days. Can they reverse their fortunes at Cleveland? Because the last few years, it's not been a friendly place. Well, if Hawk Harrelson is right and it's not who you play, it's when you play him, then yes, <laughs> like it should be a, the time to catch him. Like we talked about it before, trying to figure out like which team was going to be atop the AL Central at this point. And we both felt good about the Guardians and the reason I thought you know, the Guardians were in a positive spot is because they had that rotation depth, the kind of depth that makes it hard for them to get into a long losing streak. 
And then I thought finally that they had uh, stumbled upon some players who were going to be contributing to the lineup around Jose Ramirez on a consistent basis. Like Jimenez had gotten it going. Quan, uh, it was, uh, you know, really good at getting on base. And basically he had like top five lineup, which is what the uh, Guardians or Indians had during the Indians era, where they were uh, good enough to win the division. You know, it was Lindor and Ramirez, and then they'd just try to stitch together a few other players to get by. And they seem to have that mix going for him, but now July has come and it's really, you know, Ramirez has gone colder. He's having like a normal go of it. And uh, there are a couple hot bats and the rest of their OBPs are under, you know, 300 this past stretch. Like they had an awful road trip. Um, you know, they, the, the Royals kind of beat them up a little bit. Uh, the starts are getting short. The bullpen's over tech. So the White Sox know, I think, who they're facing a little bit because uh, right now the uh, Guardians are having some of the same problems the White Sox have in terms of just getting through nine innings without feeling like uh, everybody's out of gas. Even though these are road games, I I know Cleveland and just reading a lot of Cleveland blogs because every morning I try to read up on every single team. So I'm in the know of what's happening around the major league baseball outside of the Chicago White Sox. And there was a lot of optimism this week for the Cleveland guardians, because even though it's a seven game road trip, they're playing the Detroit Tigers and the Kansas city Royals. This was an opportunity for them to capitalize and catch the Minnesota Twins, or if not, pass the Minnesota Twins. I I know a lot of Guardians fans were rooting for the White Sox when the Twins were visiting Chicago because if the White Sox could win that series, and if the Guardians take care of business against Detroit, maybe they're tied going into the weekend. That seven-game road trip ended up going 1-6 for Cleveland. Uh, Losing 6 out of 7 to Detroit and Kansas City, I mean, that's a glass of water thrown at your face wake up call uh <laughs> cleveland's offense has really slowed down as jim mentioned they've only scored five or more runs once in their last 10 games and they've scored three runs or fewer in seven of their last 10 games so that's kind of where cleveland's woes are at fault it's one thing to lose a home series against the new york yankees that wasn't shocking but to compound that home series loss to the Yankees to go one and six against Detroit and Kansas city is definitely a wake up call for the guardians. So even though the guardians seem wounded, this is still a dangerous team for the Chicago white Sox in this series. And we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Alec and Alec wrote to us, Jim, after these 19 division games, how accurately do you think we'll be able to predict whether or not the white Sox are making the playoffs? I guess it goes back to the idea of like eight games being my red line and the white Sox, like the way it's gone is like when, whether it's been a hot streak, cold streak uh, for any team, white Sox, guardians, twins, like it's been roughly the same order and same distance between the teams for like the entire, you know, basically the entire last two months, like the twins and first guardians floating in between the white Sox. And there's like a margin of like six games, like four to six and a half games. Uh, depending on like when you catch them. And it doesn't seem to matter really like how, you know, poorly any team is playing at one time or how well any team is playing at one time. They, they're kind of on the same cycle. So I think when it comes to the end of 19 games, I'm just mainly looking at the margin between the teams. Like that's, uh, that's how I'm evaluating the season and, and evaluating hopes uh, because we saw them look lousy against the Tigers and just, you know, for whatever reason, all the losses and wins are lined up to where like they're just not losing that kind of margin yet. So when it comes to 19 games, we'll look at the standings. And, you know, 
I think the White Sox are a team that can be maybe frustrating through game 162 and just wait till it all comes together and it never comes together. Like I'm fully bracing for that realization and, and understand. I won't be surprised if it happens if the White Sox, you know, finish the season, you know, 78 and 84 and be like, yeah, they kind of look like a 78 win team the entire year. You know, what are you, you going to do about it? But you can also see a case where because the Twins and Guardians have not been able to separate themselves from the White Sox, no matter how poorly they've played, that all it takes is one big week when the Twins are having a bad week to flip the standings. And all of a sudden, it's a whole different game. The roster is being managed differently. Um, you know, and this is a, a week or a series for a kill shot. So that's why I can't really, you know, or I'm, I'm not thinking of in terms of just, you know, margin or games or what the White Sox record is. It's really just about the margin between the teams. It's I'm, I'm throwing away the idea of a wild card uh, appearance. Uh, I think that the other divisions are too deep, especially the East to where I don't see the White Sox cracking that, that code to somehow slip ahead of one of those AL East teams. Maybe even the, the Mariners, if they hang on with this hot streak. Uh, I think it's going to be more about just trying to get the central and and focusing on a, a three-horse race and putting the blinders on everywhere else. If the White Sox win eight straight games, or, which technically would be a 10-game winning streak after winning the last two against Detroit, and we are going to the All-Star break talking about a 49-43 and 43 White Sox team, then the rhetoric and tone is going to be a complete 180 from where we are right now regarding the Chicago White Sox. However, we are pretty optimistic about the White Sox road trip in late April when they visited Cleveland and Minnesota, and they lost six straight games <laughs> uh, to the Twins and Guardians. And our tone got really sour and sad very quickly, and it just seems like that is where the White Sox dug themselves a hole after starting the season 6-3, and three, and they have been stuck like either at or below 500 since late April. And it stems from that road trip going to Cleveland and Minnesota in late April. So if the White Sox were to able to reverse their fortunes in Cleveland and Minnesota, then yeah, they can get themselves really close to the Minnesota twins for first place in the American league central. If they could win these next eight games on the road and finish the first half for the pre all-star break on a 10 game winning streak, because we are seeing crazy teams right now go on these really long winning streaks. And we're going to talk about them in a quick moment here. But if the white Sox go four and four, I think that's a respectable road trip. Understanding that they're going to Cleveland and Minneapolis, two places that have been tough on the white Sox to win in recent years but they're still going to be 45 and 47 at the all-star break. And I'm still not going to feel great about the White Sox chances of winning the American league central being below 500 going to the all-star game festivities. If they were to go six and two, if they were able to win both of these series, winning three out of four against Cleveland and Minnesota, and that would put them at 47 and 45, then I would allow myself to hope again, Jim. But I'm also trying to protect myself from having too much hope and being optimistic because I had that stretch in May when they won six straight games against the Cubs and Red Sox in that road trip. I was hopeful after the Los Angeles Dodgers series that the White Sox having the easiest schedule remaining in Major League Baseball, starting with the Texas Rangers. 
would mean good times were coming, and I was hopeful after winning the home series against the Toronto Blue Jays and a four-game series against the Baltimore Orioles that the White Sox would be above 500 and we wouldn't be talking about a below 500 White Sox team ever again. And I've been disappointed too many times this first half of the 2022 season. But if the White Sox want me to be hopeful, if they want me to buy whatever Kool-Aid Steve Stone is selling on Twitter, they got to go 6-2 and two in, in this road trip. Yeah, every week is a big week for the White Sox. Every week is like a fresh minefield to where like, oh, this, this could minefield be... Minefield is a great way of putting it. Yeah, it's like this could be the week it all uh, comes together. Or this is the week where just one, you know, one bad day with one collision or one, you know, kind of pitcher leaving the mound early changes the entire complexion of what the White Sox are trying to do. So, yeah, I would say five and three just because I don't think these teams are good enough to, you know, five and three is just, you know, that, that brings back to mind what we talked about before in terms of this... This being a long-term project, we're talking about like second half of August, first half of September, catching up to the Twins, erasing the five-game margin. Like five and three accomplishes that uh, slog towards the top. <laughs> like just a little bit of uh, trench warfare going on and and, and feeling like uh, it's never going to arrive. But that at least accomplishes that. But yeah, just another 500 showing, not putting a dent into a lead with a direct rival, either one of them. Then I think yeah they're they're spinning their wheels and and blowing an opportunity but yeah I think by the probably by the twenty fourth with another four games over three days against the Guardians that might be like even then like even next week with, with the All Star break and having four games without days that's a big week because the Guardians have a uh, yeah they're they're four days with the Guardians uh, coming up over three and just like yeah that's a uh, that's another huge week. If they if they go one and three, that undo does what they did this week before. So yeah, that's why I can't get wrapped up in any one series, any one game. It's all going to be about like when the smoke clears at the end of the stretch, and if the White Sox are still six back of the Twins, if they're even further back, or if the if they're six back of the Twins but now five back of the Guardians, and they have to make up that much ground against both teams, the the calculus gets complicated further, and just uh, it's a mess. So. It is a week to, if not, you know, make up ground, at least hold ground against one of the teams and make up ground against the other. They can't afford to lose ground against both teams. The Minnesota Twins will be facing the Milwaukee Brewers on Tuesday and Wednesday. So they have Monday off, and then the Twins will be waiting for the Chicago White Sox for the last series before the All-Star break. And all teams have at least four days off before they pick up play for that weekend. And again, the White Sox after the All-Star break will be hosting the Cleveland Guardians at home before they have a day off and then visit the Colorado Rockies out in Denver. And that's the first five games after the All-Star break for the Chicago White Sox. All right, let's quickly take a look at the American League because... If we were a general baseball podcast, th these two teams would be the big stories. And that's the Seattle Mariners and the Baltimore Orioles. Both teams have won eight straight games. Seattle has caught the Toronto Blue Jays in the standings. The Seattle Mariners, in which Jim had no faith in them whatsoever and couldn't buy them, might pick to win the American League West. I say that with a laugh because there's no chance they're going to catch the Houston Astros. But they have tied the Toronto Blue Jays in the standings and they're just a game back at Tampa Bay and they're just two games back of the Boston Red Sox as we are recording. Uh, I don't know the end result of the Yankees and Red Sox Sunday night baseball game as I'm speaking. 
But Seattle's 45 and 42. Baltimore is 43 and 44. The Baltimore Orioles, whose team payroll is less than what the New York Mets are paying Max Scherzer for the season, are 43 and 44. Even though they're last place in the American League East, they're just two games back of the wild card and they are ahead of the Chicago White Sox in the wild card race. Jim, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but I want this chaos to last longer. I want Seattle and Baltimore to continue winning here because it just adds more chaos in what has been a pretty boring American League postseason race to date. Yeah, the divisions are the division races are boring. The Yankees are up 15 games. The Astros are up 12. So I think it is going to be, you know, when you have the Mariners charging, when you have like the Orioles on the fringe of it, that does add a layer of depth. And yeah, I can see it being two two discussions. One is like, oh, the expanded postseason will let anybody in. If the Orioles are in, like, it does lend some credence to like, oh, if the Orioles just spent a little more. Uh, they'd be factors in this postseason. Like, say if they tail off from this eight-game winning streak, this is kind of a peak of a season, and they are falling behind and are more of like a 74-win team uh, for the season. You can look at it and say like, well, if only they had more talent, if only they they spent a little bit more, if only they they tried to invest in their team, they could be a postseason team because the Blue Jays were disappointing, the Rays couldn't quite put it together, uh, the West fell apart. And so that does, you know, maybe inspire some of the, teams who are hoarding revenue sharing money to put some money in their team. I could also be being a case where just like, well, look at what the Rangers spent, look what the Angels spent and they're getting pantsed by the Orioles who didn't try. Like, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, teams, a lot of ways a team can get in the postseason. So why bother spending? Like I can see this being a, a double edged sword when arguing like how much, how much you should try to make your team better. But I look at the Mariners and I look at like how well, Julio Rodriguez is playing and saying like, man, you know, like that's, I think what the White Sox could get out of Luis Robert. If Robert can kind of get out of this funk to where like, he's just kind of flipping a lot of balls to right field, popping a lot of things up. Like he's looking like outside corner. Like that's kind of a weird place for a hitter to look like he's not really zoning. You know, he's, he's, he's pounded some mistakes, which is good, but for whatever reason, like he just seems intent on having the Tim Anderson approach to just flipping balls to right field when he should be, you know, much more than that. And then the other guy I'm noticing for the Mariners is Carlos Santana. Like, yeah, the Mariner, the, the Royals just get rid of him. And all of a sudden, like, he looks like Cleveland, Carlos Santana. He looks like the guy that, you know, the, the, the Mariners are traded, Jerry Tapota traded for the first time. And, uh, yeah, I wonder how long that'll last. And if this is just kind of lightning in a bottle. But Rodriguez is the guy I look at and say, like, man, if Luis Robert could just, uh, you know, iron out this his plate approach right now and just, you know, start doing more damage and, and, and kind of more pull field damage. Like that's the kind of transformation we could see with this lineup. Cause when, you know, we talked about it earlier in the season, when Anderson is making the game look simple and when Robert's making the game look simple, that, that takes such a load off the rest of the offense. And that was when Jose Abreu was struggling. Even that's when like Grandal wasn't healthy and Moncada wasn't there in the lineup and Jimenez wasn't, you know, he was, he was hitting everything on the ground. So I still think Robert can do so much for this offense. And I think I look at Rodriguez and I see, you know, that, that's why I'm not going to abandon the White Sox hope this year or say like they're going to be out of it just because I think it, there is a hot streak around the corner if some of this talent can be channeled. It's just more of a matter of like, can the White Sox, you know, that's the uh, million dollar question, but 
the talent is there. And so in, there's no point in rooting against them because rooting against them or like hoping they just kind of fall apart means Robert falls apart or means like, you know, some guy you want to trade, whether it's like Moncada or Jimenez or Grandal or whoever falls apart in or stays falling apart. And, and that just makes it harder to try to overhaul this team the following year. Well, you guys had questions for us, so let's answer them next in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our Patreon supporters, get to ask the questions. Thanks to our awesome Patreon supporters, which you can sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. They filled up our mailbag this week. These are the free questions for our Patreon supporters. Stick around. You will have bonus P.O. Sox questions uh, after these three. And we start off with the question from Steve Griffin. And Steve wrote to us, Jim, many of us are critical of Tony La Russa for handling of the pitching staff. But how much of the blame should be placed on Ethan Katz? He gets a lot of the credit for fixing guys. So how much responsibility does he have for decisions like pitching changes, which relievers get certain innings, etc.? I don't blame, place much blame on Katz for that. I do think that, you know, he maybe gets credit for fixing guys and not enough blame, or maybe not blame is the wrong word, but scrutiny for like, say, you know, why some relievers are inconsistent or why, um, you know, Kopech is having a step back or why, you know, Giolito is all of a sudden vulnerable uh, and his changeup is not working. Like, it seems like he gets credit for, I think you know, a lot of, people like feeling like the pitching coach has things under control and like is very, very soothing under Don Cooper for all those years when, you know, Cooper Fixum was not a joke so much as like, Oh, uh, you know, he has an idea of what he's looking for and can scout players and other teams. Like that was very reassuring to have that kind of uh, presence in an organization. And I understand like the urge to want cats to be that guy. I don't think he's proven it yet. I think he's had some nice successes. I also think that when you look at how much they've spent the bullpen and how much they need to continue spending on the bullpen to have a functioning units, like that's, that's a little bit on the pitching coach, I think to be, uh, you know, like make, making sure that the White Sox are, you know, not just throwing money down a drain. So I, I do agree that there should be scrutiny on him in terms of that. But I think, you know, Tony La Russa is a hall of famer baseball person. Like he doesn't need, you know, unless Dave Duncan was really his binky and, you know, Duncan was the guy making him look smarter in that regard. And he's not that kind of genius. Uh, he just had a you know, really good pitching coach that solved half of the game for him. Then, yeah, I can see an argument that Katz isn't pulling his weight, but I think that's even then that's more reflective on La Russa, just because like it's, it's his team. He's the one who's, um, you know, has the second most managerial wins of all time. He's the one who wears the Hall of Fame ring when he goes to, uh, uh, you know, complain about a strike zone to an umpire. So it does all fall on him. That's a case where, like, it's it's the manager. It's, you know, the pitching coaches, as we learned with the Wes Johnson thing, don't get paid that much. The managers are the ones who uh, get the glory. They're the ones who, uh, you know, are the ones pulling the string. So the, the, the buck stops with them. So, I would, you know, focus on cats for discussions around like who's making strides, who's taking steps back, but in-game decisions and and who's getting what leverage. I think that's a Larusa thing. I don't know what you're talking about, Jim. Joe Kelly's awesome. He should get more appearances in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, he should pitch in five of the upcoming games in the most high-leverage situations. Yeah, Kelly coming in with the game tied, and Lopez coming in with the socks down too. That's uh. 
strike that reverse it's basically but I, you know when you look at a decision like that you know who is larusa going to trust versus who is ethan katz going to trust like uh, larusa the guy who's had uh experience and overlap with the playoff hardened joe kelly or lopez the guy who's been thrown really well as of late under the close uh watch of the white Sox coaching staff i'm just saying joe kelly's yeah. awesome yeah Jim. yep he is awesome so yeah but i mean that is a good example of just exactly like yeah it's larusa <laughs> Joe Kelly's not awesome. Do not say that Josh Nelson is a huge Joe Kelly believer. I'm trying to get him traded to Boston right now. Josh Nelson said Joe Kelly is awesome. <laughs> Steve. Start the attack ads now. Steve, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Michael. And Michael's asking, do the White Sox miss out on a chance to be competitive in 2019? With great years from Yohan Makata, Lucas Giolito, and Tim Anderson, plus being 500 in June, it feels like this window may have been shutting quickly, could have been opened sooner. I don't, yeah, I think watching the Tigers this year, watching the Royals in their late Whit Merrifield days, like, it is hard, I think, to, you know, force open the window of contention, say, we want to be a postseason team sooner. I think when you do a whole scale rebuild, and, 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 you know, you do tear the team down to the studs and you do try to bring as many in-house solutions up as possible and go through those growing pains. I think it's hard to try to augment that with veteran players and say, like, we're going to win now. Uh, I don't think, uh, yeah, I, I think too much rides on that inconsistent, precocious talent. And, you know, veterans, especially veterans who might take those contracts, can only go so far. I, I think... It wouldn't so, yeah, the guy I point to when it comes to kind of discussing the White Sox losing too hard on purpose, like just, you know, taking the rebuild too literally and saying like, we need to lose as many games as possible. We can't win sooner. Trying to win 90 games when you're likely to win 78, like 78 wins is pointless. You know, that, that mindset, like it did prevent them from signing somebody like Lance Lynn instead of trading for somebody like Lance Lynn. Like if you're the White Sox and you feel like we got enough guys, uh, you know, in the farm system, we know who we're going to bring up. We're, we, ho- we know who our next core is going to be, but we know we're going to be two starters short. We're going to have to add starters at some point. Why not add Lance Lynn who would sign here on a three-year deal right now? And he might be good at the end of the three years. If he's not, we'll be able to cycle out of him add somebody else because the payroll is not going to be that expensive yet. Why not add Lance Lynn? And Lance Lynn would not have propelled the 2019 White Sox to great heights, but they would not have had to trade Dane Dunning for him. And Dunning's a guy they could have used uh, at, at various points over the course of the last two years. So that's kind of how I look at it is, you know, should the White Sox have to entertain this kind of scenario in the future? It does make sense to trade some guys. Like we saw, you know, the, their whole rebuild isn't so much about a referendum on whether they should have traded Chris Sale or, you know, Adam Eaton, Jose Quintana, et cetera, because those were good moves. That was a good decision. The idea of just like turning the page on the era and saying like, let's, we want to start a new era with new guys. Fair enough. If it takes like a couple seasons of losing because of that, okay, I get it. But once the players are assembled and they're graduating, then I think, you know, it doesn't make sense to lose another year. It doesn't make sense maybe to overinvest in that one year. Think like, okay, we really want 2019 to be the year and we're going to sign 
like a 34 year old veteran to a four year contract because we want this to happen now. But if it's a guy like Lance Lynn, who's in his you know early 30s, has the kind of arsenal to where like he should age pretty well. He might be average. You know, he might be average now and average later, but he can help. He can be a fourth starter. Then you may as well have him because you'll have use for him later. Or you might be able to trade him later, as the, as the Rangers found out. So that's, I think, how I look at it. I, I wouldn't try to say, like, um, they could have won in 2019. I think the flaws were too pronounced still. And they needed uh, Grandal and Keuchel and a shortened season to uh, make the postseason the next time around. But... Then again, they could have signed Grandal in 2019. So I think that's the one thing I could have said. Like, maybe you get a better year or you get you know, that four-year contract for Grandal and you get one of the younger years of Grandal instead of one of the older years in the back end. And they give up a draft pick, but who cares? That's that's maybe how I look at it. But I still think it's more about having the talent in place for 2020 rather than 2019 itself. They only had one good starting pitcher in 2019, Michael. And that was Lucas Giolito just... Looking back at the starting rotation for the White Sox, they didn't have enough pitching, but that was a fun, bad team. Mm-hmm. They were fun because they had a lot of guys hitting the baseball. If you brought the 2019 offense to the White Sox currently, maybe they would be better than where they are right now. Uh, but yeah, they just did not have enough pitching, Michael, to be super competitive in 2019 unless we reverse history and taking what we know now and time traveling and having the White Sox sign Lance Lynn and Yasmani Grandal and sign either Manny Machado or Bryce Harper, they still would have a long way to go because that team finished 72 and 89. Uh, They they just did not have enough pitching, Michael. And we found out that the pitching eventually came and the pitching is not the problem right now for the Chicago White Sox in 2022. But Michael, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Joe. And Joe is asking, where is the accountability for this team? While I agree with it releasing Dallas Keuchel, he's the only one to suffer any consequence for a poor performance this season. The rest of the players, coaching staff, and front office seem to be getting a pass. It's incredibly frustrating as a fan to see mistake after mistake made and zero repercussions for anyone making them. So I posted a poll on Twitter, Jim, that kind of tags along with Joe's question. And I asked who is most to blame for the White Sox struggles in 2022, the players, Jerry Reinsdorf, Rick Hahn, or Tony La Russa. And I'll read off the results in a moment, but first let's answer Joe's question. Where is the accountability for this team? I wonder if the accountability starts with that Bob Nightingale quote. Like that's, you know, the, when you're trying to figure out like who's, who benefits from this, um, you know, who gets the fingers pointed at them. Like we said, it was a very, uh, no specific players mentioned, but a, the start of a player heavy framing of what's going on with, with the White Sox and where they're failing. So in classic White Sox fashion, it's passive aggressive and it's, uh, uh, very unsatisfying and, uh, fans don't benefit from it, but still it's, you know, that's maybe the first sign since the Keuchel DFA, of, you know, and maybe like the Gavin Sheets demotion, that was another example of accountability is like saying Gavin Sheets is not working. Uh, that's to where like, you know, maybe some changes will be made, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, you know, just the idea that, you know, Daryl Boston and Joe McEwing are in three managers and they're just kind of around their furniture at this point. And uh, you know, I, I mentioned it on a Lawrence Holmes show. Like I, I'm now forming a socks machine, uh, administrative platform for if I'm ever running for office, 
you know, I mentioned it before that managers should be limited to one-year contracts unless they make the World Series. Uh, you know, my latest idea is that coaches uh, below the hitting coach and pitching coach level uh, should not uh, be kept around if they don't interview for another job in, in a five-year period. Because that means they're not interesting enough to other teams. They're not in any team's lists. And okay, so they must not be special. And so, uh, you know, unless it's a case like, you know, I, I think there are a, a few cases like, I'm thinking like Ron Wotus, Bruce Boshi's, uh third base coach with the, uh, with the Giants. But the Giants were so successful under him that sure, keep whoever you want, Bruce Bochy, because you're great and you're going to the Hall of Fame and your team has won three World Series. Uh, but for every other team, especially the White Sox, who have been, you know, as I mentioned with Rick Hahn's uh, tenure, that they've had four over 500 halves out of 18, the time he's been general manager, and only two of them when he's been on a 90 win pace. So only two three-month periods where they, they could have won 90 games over a six-month period. And uh, to me, it's just like, well, you know, accountability, it's tough to come by if the GM is never going to be fired and if the manager can't be fired then accountability is limited to players. And sure, some of them need to be held accountable. And there are some players who can be changed and some guys who should lose their responsibilities and roles. But over the course of 10 years, when there isn't larger successes, when you've had some spectacular failures, worldwide headline-inducing failures, <laughs> a team that otherwise does not command the attention of, say, Australia, like morning news shows in Australia with the Adam LaRoche thing uh, to where like, yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, an organization with a lot of rot and decay that's just kind of underneath it. And, and you can try to paint over it, but as he, as, as homeowners know, uh, if things are uh, damp underneath and you try to paint over it, that just, you know, worsens the rot underneath everything. And, and all of a sudden everything crumbles and, and you have a more expensive mess to deal with. So that's, that's, I think, you know, where I come with the accountability in your poll is like individually for a year for the 2022 White Sox, it is the players. Like the talent is underperforming and we shouldn't be discussing Tony La Russa's decisions as much as we're discussing them. It shouldn't matter that much. But I think uh, take a step back and why does Rick Hahn still have a job? Why was Tony La Russa ever hired? Like, you know, those are more characteristic of an organization that can't get out of its own way. And the results of the season are how that manifests itself over a first half. So that's why I think like it's a hard poll to answer just because um, I think all of them are to blame or is my answer is to the, you know, who's in charge, Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, Jerry Ryan's or Tony Russa. My answer to that is who cares? <laughs> just... Uh, yeah, the, the way the organization is structured sucks. And uh, as long as they, you know, continue to not perform in such a way that allays those fears and puts all the doubts behind us, I think it continues to suck. Yeah, the poll again, who is most at fault for the White Sox struggles to 2022? We had over 4,000 votes on Twitter. <laughs> 33% say the players. 29% say Jerry Reinsdorf, 27% say Tony La Russa, and 11% say Rick Kahn. If I had to stack the four, it's the, it's the players number one because, yes, there's too many that are underperforming their 2022 season projections. If they were meeting their Zips projections, I don't think we're having the conversations that we are having. However, 
if they were meeting those Zips projections and they were still way behind the Yankees and Astros with seeing how well those two teams are playing, I think a lot of blame would be put on Rick Hahn for not improving the team after what we have seen in the last two postseasons with the losses to Oakland and the Houston Astros. So Rick Hahn would be number two for me. Jerry Reinsdorf would be number three. And I guess Tony La Russa would be number four. But Tony La Russa is the easiest fix. You should just fire him. Uh, because the Philadelphia Phillies are 25 and 10 since they let Joe Girardi go. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I don't know what the record is for the Angels when they let Joe Madden go. That is the counter, and it's a very mm-hmm. good counter. But let's focus on what helps my campaign, Jim, of getting a new manager for the White Sox. So let's ignore what's happening in Anaheim. Let's just focus on Philadelphia being 25 and 10 since letting Joe Girardi go. Uh, but, Joe, thank you so much for your question. And. Where is the accountability? Uh, I ask, where is Kenny Williams? Because we have not heard from Kenny Williams in a very, very long time. And I greatly appreciate everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. Again, if you have a question or a topic that's on your mind that you would like us to answer in a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, sign up to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the podcast and website. And when we have new Sox Machine swag, they're the first ones to get it. Monthly plans start at $2. You can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered Sox Machine, and the podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Apple Music and Spotify, as the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.